Be seated. And Scott, if you could grab me a mic stand and set it up right here in front of me, that would be great. I would hold this microphone to my mouth the whole morning, but not only would that be tedious, um, there's an old joke about Italians. If you want to silence an Italian, uh, you have to cut off his hands. I am Italian. I preach with my hands, and this just won't work for the morning for me to hold the mic like this. Thank you, Scott. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. In our regular exposition, we come this morning to verse 13. Matthew chapter 3. Please follow along as I read verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, now we have come before your word. We've come to hear it preached. We pray, Father, that you would open our hearts and our minds and our hearts to understand the truth, to understand your word, to apply it aright to our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would remove distraction. We pray that you would send your spirit upon us. We pray that he would have his way among us this morning as the word is preached. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have considered in previous sermons, uh, there are scores of passages in the Old Testament that envisioned this very moment in Matthew 3, uh, namely the arrival of Israel's Messiah uh, in the process of redemptive history, in the process of time. This event was long foretold, that he would come and that he would appear among his people. Many texts foretold his coming. You go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. There we're told that the seed of the woman would one day come, that he would crush Satan's head. There are other passages, Genesis 12, where we're told there would come a son of Abraham one day who would bring deliverance and blessing to the nations. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses told the people that there would one day come a prophet greater than Moses, like him, but greater than him. And God would speak through him. He would put his commands in the mouth of this prophet, and the people would listen to him. They would submit to him. 2 Samuel 7, where we're told that one day a son of David would come, and that he would reign on his father's throne forever, and that the Lord would establish his kingdom, and that he would reign in perfect righteousness and peace and justice uh, throughout all eternity. Uh, Passages like Daniel 7, our brother Rex Blackburn preached that passage a couple of months ago. Oh, where there the Son of Man is to come on the clouds, and he is to establish justice throughout the world. And we briefly looked at Isaiah 60, verse 1, which says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, 
and his glory will be seen upon you. One day the Lord's going to come. The Christ is going to come. He's going to dawn on them like the sun, like a light shining in their midst. And they will see his glory. One of my favorite passages that talks about the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Christ, the Messiah, is found in the last book of the Old Testament, the second to last chapter. It's in Malachi 3, verse 1, where we read, and this is a passage John will cite with reference to his own ministry. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. And then we read, and then the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. What will that be like? The Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant will appear. Well, you get in the mind of a first century Jew. What were they expecting? What did they think that was going to be like when he finally arrives on the scene and steps into the spotlight? In light of these and other Old Testament passages that may be in our mind, what would you expect it to be like when the Messiah finally appears to do his work? When he finally takes center stage and appears on the stage of history, what would you see? What do you think you would hear? You might imagine trumpets and processions and all kinds of heavenly fanfare. You might imagine angels ascending and descending. You might picture signs and wonders accompanying his advent. You might imagine crowds gathering around him and bowing before him, falling to the ground and worshiping him. You might imagine his enemies fleeing from before his face. You might imagine any number of things. Well, we need not imagine. Because in Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17, we're told what this was like. When the Lord suddenly appeared, what did it look like? What do we see? What do we hear? All of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, introduce Jesus in this way. The adult man Jesus arrives on the scene in the event of his baptism. We really just have a tiny bit of material on the first 30 years of Jesus' life. We know almost nothing about his childhood. Luke would give us probably the most detail. And most of the gospel accounts are pretty scarce on any details related to the birth and childhood of Jesus himself. But all of them introduce the adult man Jesus in this way through his baptism. Now in Matthew 3.13... Jesus, the Messiah, steps into the light for the first time. This is it. Here he is. The one that all these texts have foretold of would come. Here he steps onto the scene as an adult man. And what is the scene? What do you see? What do you hear? As we're going to see this morning when Jesus finally takes center stage, we're impressed with two things. First of all, I think we're impressed with striking modesty and humility. Striking modesty and humility. He comes, along with the rest of the Jews, to be baptized by John. Striking modesty and humility for the messenger of the covenant. But I think also we will notice a second thing. We see in the event of Jesus' baptism, not only his modesty and humility but also the most extraordinary expressions of honor and glory ascribed to him, not by man, but by God himself. These two things together, Jesus' modesty and humility, along with the honor and praise given him by God, form the most profound introduction to the ministry of the Son of God. Let's open up our passage this morning under three main headings, three headings that will organize our consideration of these verses. We'll consider, first of all, John's baptism of Jesus, 
Uh, second of all, the Spirit's anointing of Jesus. And thirdly, the Father's approval of Jesus. John's baptism, the Spirit's anointing, the Father's approval. Consider with me firstly John's baptism of Jesus. Look again, if you would, at verses 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would not have prevented him saying, or excuse me, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, that is John, consented. To understand what's going on here, we need to be reminded of the significance of who John was and what his baptism entailed. So who was John? If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this in verses 1 through 12. John was this key figure in redemptive history, uh, this transitional figure. He is the last prophet of an age that is coming to an end. He is the last, you could say, of the Old Testament prophets. And he is announcing the dawning of a new age. John comes as this special figure in redemptive history, this last prophet, to prepare the way for the Lord, to prepare the way of the coming Christ of the Messiah. And he comes to announce a new reality and a corresponding command. He comes to announce the new reality that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is dawning. It is here. The new age has come. And in light of this, there is a corresponding command. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, repent. Therefore, turn from your sins, confess your sins, and turn unto God through his Christ. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, repent. And John comes then baptizing. And what did his baptism entail? Well, he says that his baptism is for repentance. That baptism in some way involve the frank acknowledgement and confession of our personal sins to God. Since we have committed against God, we're to confess them to God in baptism. Baptism is a symbol of confession and of repentance. But that's not the only thing that baptism signifies, at least John's baptism. John's baptism also announced the coming of a new age and identified all those being baptized as members of this new kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and in embracing the baptism of this kingdom, you're identifying yourself as one who believes in this kingdom and identifies themselves as a member of this kingdom. Those two ideas, repentance and the kingdom of heaven dawning, are present in baptism. It's a symbol of repentance of sin, a symbol also of identification with the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And then we might ask, well, who then is to be baptized? And the answer simply is everyone. Uh, the reality that the kingdom of heaven is at hand has implications for all of us. It has implications for Abby. It has implications for Lydia. And it has implications for Reuben and for Judy and for Ed and for me and every single one of us. All of us should respond to this news that the kingdom of heaven has come in Christ with repentance and with the confession of sin. And having repented of sin to be baptized as a symbol of that repentance and identifying ourselves as members of this new kingdom. But I think, and if you were here last week, you heard me speak about this, I think we're also to recognize uh, that there is a special emphasis in John's ministry upon calling the Jewish nation to repentance. He's ministering uh, uh, in, in the region of the Jordan River. He's calling Jews to come and to confess of their sins. Uh, th th there was such a thing as proselyte baptism in John's day. If someone was to become part of the Jewish people, they were sort of baptized in the Jewish community. But John's saying, no, you Jews need to repent. The fact that your Messiah is coming, that the Christ is coming, that the, the new kingdom is here, 
You are to repent of your sins. And even your leaders are to repent of their sins and to be baptized and to bear fruits worthy of repentance and baptism. He calls even the Pharisees and the Sadducees to repentance. John is calling the Jewish people to embrace their Christ, to embrace repentance, to embrace the dawning of the kingdom. It is this picture we get of John, his place in redemptive history, his ministry, his preaching, his baptism, that sets the stage for the appearance of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for the first time. It sets the stage for Jesus' baptism. Now, in light of what we've learned about John and about his baptism, what happens now in verse 13 may seem out of place to you. If you're just reading along Matthew 1, Matthew 2, beginning of Matthew 3, I think what comes next in the story seems wholly unexpected. Jesus comes to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. Jesus comes to John's baptism to be baptized by him. The one who is greater than John, with a baptism greater than John's, comes to John to be baptized by him. What in the world is going on here? Is that what you would have expected as the next sort of step in the narrative? Here we see the adult Jesus for the first time. The Messiah comes onto the scene. This is our first proper glimpse of the one all of the Old Testament anticipated. He is the fulfillment of all of those passages I mentioned at the start of the sermon. He's anticipated in the first few chapters of Matthew's gospel. And what is he doing? He comes to be baptized by John like the rest of the Jews. Does that seem out of place? But even the rest of the opening of this gospel, I mean, if he really is the Christ, as the opening genealogy states, and if he is the new Yeshua, uh, the new Savior, the Deliverer, Jesus, who will save his people from their sins, why would he need to be baptized? John just finished saying his baptism is a baptism for repentance. How could Jesus be baptized? He doesn't have anything to repent of. He certainly doesn't need to be cleansed of anything. Shouldn't Jesus come and, I don't know, start baptizing people himself? Maybe with that spirit and fire baptism that we were told is going to come in the person of Jesus. Or maybe, I don't know, start preaching a sermon to everybody. Or pick up where John left off. Start talking about repentance. But that's not what we see. His first public act, really the way in which he chooses to inaugurate his public ministry, is by submitting himself to baptism. And so you feel like maybe you've missed something. And you think, well, there must be something here that, like, the, you know, the Jews of Jesus' day, they clearly would have understood if they read this. And I, the 21st century American, just really don't get it. Or maybe you think, you know, uh, let me read through the narrative again. I probably missed a detail that would clue us in as to why Jesus would pursue baptism. And so you read through it again, pretty straightforward, and you think, no, I'm still scratching my head. There's a kind of dissonance here, isn't there? That Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, the Christ, would be baptized by a sinful man. Well, to encourage you, if you feel that dissonance in the text, John the Baptist sympathizes with you. Okay, he feels that tension, that contradiction, but who Jesus is and what baptism he thinks is, he feels that tension too. For we read, verse 14, John would have prevented him. We would have prevented him. If, 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 if we were living in those days and Jesus came wanting to be baptized by one of this church's elders, I imagine we would refuse. This is unbecoming. It's not appropriate. We would have prevented him. John says, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? 
In other words, Jesus, this is inappropriate. This is unbecoming. This is not as it should be. The shoe is on the wrong foot. You know, earlier it would seem that John refuses to baptize the Pharisees and the Sadducees because he assesses that they are not worthy of his baptism. Uh, Here, he would refuse Jesus' baptism because he knows his baptism is not worthy of Jesus. In a subtle way, Matthew is signaling Jesus is going to be greater than any of the religious leaders of his day. Well, what does Jesus say in response? Verse 15, but Jesus answered, let it be so now. That is, I understand your objection. I get the dissonance you see in this. But permit it. Tolerate it. Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Let it be so now. Let it be so now, John. Jesus is saying, I think this this seems out of place to you, I know, but allow what seems like an indignity to you for the time being. Because this has to do with a larger thing that I'm about to do. This has to do with doing something my Father is calling me to do. It seems out of place, but I assure you, John, this has a purpose. This has a place in the Father's expectations for me. And then he says, thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Why would Jesus say, John, I need to be baptized by you. I got to do it. If I'm going to fulfill all righteousness. I think we're helped first by understanding what the word righteousness means in this passage. The word righteousness is used in different ways in the Bible. It's important you know that. Every time the word righteousness appears, it doesn't always mean the same thing. A few different meanings. But in Matthew's gospel, it almost always means the same thing. Very stable and steady interpretation of that word righteousness in Matthew's gospel. Righteousness in Matthew's gospel almost always has to do with obedience to the will of God. Righteousness in Matthew's usage is defined as the moral conduct that God expects of people. Righteousness is doing what God requires, and that is how the term is being used here. If this is the case, then by fulfilling all righteousness, Jesus is doing what his Father requires of him. He's saying, I understand this to be part of the work my Father has given me to do. This is part of his will for me. This is part of the obedience I'm to render to my Father. You should not think that what Jesus is doing here is fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law vicariously for you so that he could impute righteousness to you. That's not the idea here. And maybe that's the way Paul in some places might use the word righteousness. That's not the way Matthew's using the term. So don't think this is like Jesus being baptized in my place or satisfying the law of God in in my place. No, this is the conduct the behavior, the obedience that the Father requires of Jesus. He's saying, I must do this to fulfill all righteousness. The Father's given me a work to do. This is part of it. This is part of the obedience I'm to render to him. But now we still might wonder, maybe this is the most prescient question. Why would God require this of his son? Why would this be part of the righteousness Jesus has to fulfill and satisfy. Why is baptism part of this righteousness he's to fulfill? And the text doesn't exactly answer the question. But of course we know it's not because Jesus sinned. It's not because he needed to confess his sins or repent or needed to be cleansed from any kind of moral impurity. That's not why Jesus will submit to baptism. I'm not sure we can entirely comprehend all that's going on here, but I think a few things are clear. 
Why is it that Jesus must be baptized? I want to suggest three reasons to you. First, I think Jesus, in being baptized, is endorsing the message that's been preached by John, namely, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and people ought to repent in response to this reality. The new age has dawned in Christ, and Jesus will be baptized, symbolizing his identification with the kingdom of heaven himself. He himself is a member of this new kingdom. He himself is this kingdom's king. And therefore, will the king refuse the baptism of the kingdom itself? He's identifying himself with the kingdom that is being preached. The second reason I think Jesus submits to baptism, he submits to baptism as part of his overall commitment to submit to the requirements of the law and the prophets. He's submitting to baptism as a pattern of keeping the law and the prophets. Jesus, of course, kept the old covenant law. He followed all the prescriptions of the law of Moses, and he followed and obeyed the words of the prophets. Matthew 5, 17, he will say, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Part of his mission was to come to fulfill all righteousness. And now, here is this last word, this last requirement from the last prophet of the age that is passing away. And Jesus is saying, I will do this too. Even this I will do. The last requirement given by the last prophet of the age that is passing away that completes the revelation of the law and the prophets is that baptism will be required of people. I will submit even to this. This is part of the demands of the law and the prophets for which Jesus will submit himself, to which he will submit himself. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. Uh, finally, and I think this may be the most speculative, but I think it's nonetheless present. I think it's going on here. I think this is the first step in a pattern that will be established throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus the King comes not with royal pomp or political triumph, but as a humble servant. And we constantly see Jesus throughout his ministry submitting himself to things, to people, to institutions, to traditions, to requirements that in his divine majesty he has no need to submit to. But he submits himself as a matter of his incarnate humility in keeping with the pattern of humiliation that will ultimately come to its fullest expression in the cross. This will be the pattern and shape of his entire ministry. Think about this. Jesus submits himself to the old covenant law, though he himself is the lawgiver and the one who ultimately fulfills the demands of the law in his coming. Jesus attends the temple, though he himself is the temple. Jesus observes the Sabbath, though he himself fulfills the Sabbath. Jesus follows the cleansing laws, even though he himself is the only one who can cleanse anybody. He pays taxes, though he himself owns the cattle on a thousand hills and everything else. Besides, he takes the Passover, though he himself is the true and better Passover lamb. Well, here is this last requirement of the law and the prophets that is set upon the Jews by their last prophet, John. And Jesus, in humility, will submit to this requirement also. He will submit to baptism by John. He will permit the indignity. Let it be so now. He knows he has no need of it in the way the sinful Jews do. But he has come to identify with sinners and to humble himself in obedience to his father. And of course, his greatest act of obedience, the greatest indignity he will suffer is to die in the place of sinners as a common criminal. 
He will submit to a criminal's death, even though he could call down a legion of angels and assert his authority. He will be obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross for the redemption of his people. That's John's baptism of Jesus, point number one. It is his obedience that the Father requires of him. John's baptism of Jesus. Consider with me, secondly, the Spirit's anointing of Jesus. The Spirit's anointing of Jesus. Look with me, if you will, at verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, immediately, we appreciate that though Jesus will be baptized like the others, his baptism will be a baptism like no other. This didn't happen with anyone else who was baptized in the River Jordan by John. Observe a few details in verse 16. First, the heavens are opened. Matthew says, behold, the heavens were opened. Like, like that's an unusual thing. Look, behold, the heavens were opened. And whenever the heavens are open in the Scriptures, it's always associated with a significant revelatory moment. God is going to speak. God is going to reveal something. The heavens are parted. The heavens literally in the text are torn open, rendered apart. A significant moment of revelation is about to occur. And then we read, the Spirit of God descends like a dove and rests upon him. Imagine the scene. You're meant to imagine the scene. You're meant to picture something visibly in your mind. The Spirit of God descends like a dove and rests upon Jesus. He's standing in the water. He's just come up from the baptism. Spirit descends upon him and rests upon him. Luke says in Luke 3, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So putting these two accounts together, there was apparently some visible corporeal manifestation of the Spirit. Visible corporeal bodily manifestation of the Spirit Descends like a dove. And what does that mean, it descended like a dove? Well, it could either mean that the corporeal, visible manifestation of the Spirit looked like a dove, or it could mean that maybe the, the bodily form, the manifestation of the Spirit was different, but the dove thing refers to its descent. Like a dove descends down to the earth, that's how this manifestation of the Spirit descended and rested upon Jesus. We don't exactly know. But what we're to understand is that there was an outward, visible, bodily manifestation of the Spirit that came down out of heaven. And we read in our text that the Spirit of God not only comes down, but it rests on Jesus. Now, the language here is crucial. This was not a momentary filling of the Spirit. Now, the Spirit descended and rested upon Jesus. The Apostle John, not John the Baptist, but the Apostle John will make much of this in his gospel account. In John 1, verse 32, we read this, and John, that is John the Baptist, bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The Spirit will descend and rest on him, will remain on him. Now, wait a minute. Are we to imagine that Jesus did not have the Holy Spirit until his baptism? So, so what is it about the Spirit coming upon him just now? Well, I don't think we're to think the Spirit was not with him. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, the Spirit was with him throughout his childhood. And moreover, he's the divine son. Just because he is a human man, he doesn't cease to be the divine son. And you cannot separate the members of the Trinity. The divine son is always in perfect harmony with his Father and with the Holy Spirit. So we should not think this is Jesus' first exposure to the Holy Spirit. But what do we have here then? And this is where that language of resting on Jesus, remaining on Jesus, I think is crucial. What we have here is the Spirit coming and filling Jesus in a particular way and for a particular purpose. What we have here is the Spirit of God anointing Jesus with presence and with power to fulfill his mission and ministry. This is the Spirit anointing him, setting his seal upon Jesus, that he is the divinely appointed, divinely anointed Messiah, the Son of God who is here to carry out the work the Father has given him to do. This is the divine commissioning of Jesus for his work by the coming of the Spirit of God upon him. Jesus will henceforth throughout the rest of this gospel minister under the power and influence and anointing of the Holy Spirit as the Lord's appointed Christ and divinely anointed service. And this is crucial to understand, the Spirit's anointing, because this is exactly what was foretold in the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 11, verse 1, we read this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's father, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Isaiah 42, verse 1, behold my servant whom I uphold, of whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. We considered uh, earlier this summer uh, in Isaiah 61, the passage that Jesus references in that synagogue service in Luke 4. In Luke's account, the very first public act that Jesus does after his baptism, after the spirit anoints him at his baptism, the first public act is to go to a synagogue service. And at that service, Jesus stands up and he reads aloud Isaiah 61, which says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what does Jesus do? He gives the scroll back to the attendant, and he sits down, and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Didn't you hear what happened at the Jordan River when I was baptized? The heavens were opened. The Spirit came and anointed Jesus for his work. And he now proceeds in the power of that Spirit to proclaim good news to captives, to preach the gospel, to call men and women to repentance, because he alone is the divinely anointed divinely appointed servant who has come to do the Lord's work. All right, that's point number two, the Spirit's anointing of Jesus. So we've seen John's baptism of Jesus, the Spirit's anointing of Jesus. Now let's put it all together, the third point, the Father's approval of Jesus. Look with me, if you will, at verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
One commentator says, here we have the most unmediated access to the Father's own view of Jesus. He sees his son obediently humbling himself to accomplish the redemption of his people. And what do we hear from the Father? What do we see? Pure, unmixed, unmitigated delight. Unalloyed pleasure in his Son, who has come in obedience, in the fulfillment of a plan made long ago to accomplish our redemption. What does the Father say? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is probably not a citation from any Old Testament text, but it has resonances with certain Old Testament passages. Psalm 2, verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Isaiah 42, 1, I read it a moment ago, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. As another commentator puts it, Jesus' baptism was God's visual and aural way of saying to history, Dear world, this is it. Here he is. Here is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we might wonder or ask, what is it precisely that God is pleased with in his son? And the answer is absolutely everything about him. The Father is pleased. He delights in the Son's person and being. He delights in His Son's very essence. He delights also in His Son's obedience. What Jesus is about to do, and you must know this, what Jesus is about to do, God approves of. Everything we see Jesus saying and doing in the gospel accounts has the approval of the Father. Invites His smile. His pleasure. He's pleased with all that the Son is and all that the Son does in obedience to the Father's will. He's pleased also with His mission and His work. Jesus coming into the world as the incarnate Son of God to go to the cross to die for our sins, this pleases the Father. We saw it in Isaiah 53 a couple of months ago. It was the will of the Lord. It was the pleasure of the Lord, the desire of the Lord to crush Him. This mission that Jesus is embarking upon, it has the Father's seal and the Father's approval. Now that the hour has come for him to carry out the work of redemption, we see the Father has no regrets. The Father knowing all that the next three years would hold. The Father knowing the suffering that he would endure. He has no regrets. He says, here's my son. I'm well pleased with him. Let's close now with three implications from this passage. Three implications from this passage. And the first is obvious, but it just needs to be stated. Implication number one, God is Trinity. God is Trinity. This is one of the passages in the Bible that most clearly teaches us the reality that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We speak of God as the Godhead 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are all three of them distinct persons and yet one God. Same substance, same essence, yet three persons equal in power and authority, three in one. You have in God one substance, one essence, and three persons, not three personalities. It's not you have one God who is kind of like schizo or something. And he vacillates between being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at different times, depending on where we are in redemptive history. It's not as though God comes to us in three different modes. So at one time he comes in the mode or form of the Father, at other times he appears in the mode or form like the Son, or in the form or mode like the Holy Spirit. This is why it's just a losing game to use illustrations and analogies about the Trinity, because they all break down. So if you were taught in vacation Bible school or another church setting that, well, the Trinity is kind of like, you know, matter. You know, you have like, like gas and a liquid and a solid. That's like the Trinity. No, that's heresy. That's a heresy called modalism. That God is not three persons, but one person that exists in these three different, you know, forms or modes. This passage, friends, is one of the reasons why modalism never got off the ground. God exists as one God, one substance, one essence, in three distinct persons. And they're all here at Jesus' baptism. Here's the obedient son, subordinating himself to the Father, living as an incarnate man to accomplish the work of redemption. Here's the Spirit of God, separate person, same essence, descending upon Jesus and anointing him. And here comes the voice from heaven from the Father. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. It's interesting, in Matthew's gospel, the next time we will see the three members of the Trinity together will be again uh, in the context of baptism. It'll be at the end of this gospel in the Great Commission. Uh, there we're told in Matthew 28 that we're to make disciples, we're to baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, one substance, three distinct persons, living in a blessed harmony and unity as the triune God. Friends, God is Trinity, and we should marvel at the Trinity. We should worship Him as Trinity. We should delight in Him as the Trinity. Second implication from this passage. We must understand that the mission of Jesus, you see Jesus going about the earth doing things and saying things. The mission of Jesus, we should understand, is the mission of the Trinity. The event of Jesus' baptism, this passage in Matthew 3, is the ultimate refutation to the idea that the members of the Trinity are at cross purposes with one another. Jesus is advancing a triune mission. He comes in fulfillment of a plan that was made in eternity past between the members of the Trinity. In the eternal counsels of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this was always part of the plan. This was always the work the Son was to do. He comes to fulfill a triune mission. You understand this, right? The Spirit of God, the person of the Holy Spirit, He wants to point you to Jesus Christ. He's not competing for your attention. Now, he was pleased to come down out of heaven to anoint the Son. My favorite book on the Trinity, I've recommended it numbers of times. It should be in the bookstall. J.I. Packer's Keeping in Step with the Spirit. He has that beautiful illustration. What's the Trinity's main, or excuse me, the Holy Spirit's main function? It is to shine a spotlight on the Son. 
When he comes, he will glorify me, Jesus says. We see it here at his baptism. If you're trying to assess the Spirit's work in the world today, you can be sure it is present where much is being made of Christ, where the Son is being exalted. Where that is not happening, the Spirit is not present. He comes to direct you to Christ, to point you to Christ. He came to anoint the Lord Jesus to do his work. And the work of Jesus in his teaching and in his miracles and in his signs and wonders and dying a vicarious death on the cross, that is the work the Spirit anointed him to do. Jesus says all that he says and does all that he does under the inspiration and anointing of the Holy Spirit. But maybe, now this is an error that might be more present in our day, maybe we need to understand more that it's the Father and the Son in particular who are not at cross purposes together. Do you view the Father and the Son as having different postures toward you? Do you associate God the Son with warmth and accessibility and relatability and God the Father is somehow standing far off. Friends, the Father's mission, the Father's character, the Father's purpose is not softened or assuaged in Jesus. It is revealed in Jesus. Who the Father is, what the Father is like, and what the Father wants is revealed perfectly in his Son. John 4, 7 and 8, Philip, speaking too soon, oh, sh show us the Father, Jesus. And Jesus say, Philip, have I been so long with you? And you don't understand? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Just look at the Son, and you will know what the Father is like. My friend, the Father's love is not half-heartedly extracted by the Son through His incarnation and death. Rather, the incarnation and death of the Son is the very expression of the Father's love. Jesus comes not so that God would love you, but because God loves you. He is the ultimate proof of the Father's love. God so loved the world. So what? that he gave his only begotten Son. The coming of the Son into the world is the initiative of the Father's love. The Father and the Son are not at cross purposes together. Friends, this is very important. When we see Jesus acting and moving and being in this gospel, remember, this is the one who has the approval of the Father. The Father approves of everything about him. This is his beloved Son. And so, my friend, when you see Jesus weeping with Mary and Martha, that reveals something about what the Father is like. When you see Jesus in Matthew 11 saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Father is there saying, Yes, yes, come to my Son. Come and have life. Come and have rest that your souls may live. The Father approves of everything the Son does. And in His teaching and in His doing, He is revealing to us what the Father is like. And when you come to God in prayer, we prayed the Lord's Prayer a moment ago by our Father who art in heaven. The clearest picture you will have of 
what that Father is like to whom you pray will be found in what you see of Jesus in this gospel. Jesus has the pleasure of the Father, the approval of the Father. He is the beloved Son in whom, Jesus is well, in whom the Father is well pleased. My friend, don't think of the Father as parsimonious, begrudging, and tight-fisted. He is more generous than you can imagine. Look at the giving of his Son, the pleasure he has in him. Third and final implication, then we'll be done. Jesus Christ is the anointed one authorized to accomplish God's purposes. He alone has the divine seal and the fatherly approval. He is the only one. The Spirit descends and remains on him and him alone. The Father is pleased with him and him alone. He is the only way to the Father. He is the only mediator between God and man. He is the one with whom you must deal. Uh, my friend this morning visiting with us today, um, you don't have to deal with me as one of the pastors of the church. You don't have to deal with the membership of Emmanuel Church. The one with whom your soul must deal is the one who has been anointed by God's Spirit, God's very own Son, with whom He is well pleased. He is the agent of redemption, and He is the agent of judgment. He is the one with whom you must deal. Children of Emmanuel Church, it's very important you understand this. We pray for you. We make appeals to you to come to become Christians. If Sunday school teachers who do this, if pastors who do this, it's important you understand this. We are not inviting you to come to us. We love you. We'd love to receive you, to pray for you. But all these invitations that we make are not inviting you to come to your Sunday school teachers or to come to your preachers or to, to come be part of the Emmanuel Church. We want you to come to Jesus. Jesus is the one you have to deal with. He is the Son of God. He is the only mediator between God and man. He is the anointed servant of the Lord, the only one who can save your soul. He is the one who will be your judge. No one in this room, no one here is qualified to be your judge. No one in this room is qualified to be your Savior. Only this one anointed by the Spirit of God, approved by the Father. He is the one with whom we all must deal. And my friend, if this is written over Jesus' life by the Father, that this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, what do you think the Father will do with all those who reject His Son? Moreover, what do you think He'll do with all those who, like him, find pleasure in the Son, who find their soul's delight and satisfaction in the Son. As we sing, praise Jesus, and exalt the Savior, God the Father is in essence saying, Amen. That's my Son. Go to him. Run to him. Fly to him. He's the one in whom my soul delights. And no doubt the Father will delight in all those who find their satisfaction and delight in Him. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, please strip us now of all distractions, of all alien intrusions into our minds and our hearts and our lives. Focus our hearts on Jesus Christ and Him alone, the only begotten Son of the Father, the one anointed by Your Spirit, the one who has Your seal, Your approval, the one with whom we all must deal. Bring us to Christ, Your chosen one. May we all receive Him, trust Him, love Him. May we find our satisfaction and delight and pleasure in Him and Him alone. Help us to turn from all of our sins. Help us to turn unto Christ. Help us to come to Him and find life. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and with just our voices, sing to our triune God, Father, Son.